A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this um, more uh, special, subdued Tisha B'Av uh, edition episode has been generously sponsored L'Zecher Nishmas Avinoam Ben Shmuel Aaron, who is still remembered fondly by his friends after 14 years. Yehi Zichrei Baruch. Just wanted to um, remind everyone that sponsorships are still available, as as well as virtual tours, um, speeches, lectures over Zoom or other technology formats are becoming more popular also. You might want to be aware of that for uh, any framework, family simchas or camps or whatever whatever it is. Um, so also want to check out in, in honor of it being both uh, Tisha B'Av and Shabbos Nachmo this week. So we have two articles in the Mishpacha magazine. My collaborator, Davi Safir, and I, one uh, more uh, camp-oriented about camps, that's for Shabbos Nachamun. We have one about a special Nazi hunt, and that's more appropriate for Tisha B'Av, so you can check them both out. I want to talk about a um, topic uh, today in honor of the spirit of of uh, Churban, of the tragedy uh, uh, on Tisha B'Av, um, about a, one, of the most, one of the greatest... Uh, tragedies in recent Jewish history was that of the Yevsektsia, the Jewish communists in the early years after they were following the revolution in 1917 in Russia. Um, what Jewish communists did to uproot Jewish life in every way, shape, and form. I actually want to start off with, um, with, uh, with uh, men- by mentioning the song that, that we uh, all grew up with, and I'm definitely not going to sing it for you because I don't want you to have too much of Avelis on Tisha B'Av, was an A.B. Rottenberg song, and it was about a, a Sefer Torah that that got hidden during the war, and and it, and uh, this long description of how the Sefer Torah was used for many years, and then it got hidden during the war, and the Jews were all killed, and, and uh, they came to rescue it after the war, and it was put in a museum, and so on and so forth. It always bothered me that the song was set in Kiev. Just for that, they, could, they would have chosen pretty much any other town, then the song might actually have been somewhat uh, plausible as a historical reality. Um, but because it's set in Kiev, it causes a lot of issues. 
and I'm only going to focus on one uh, one of them now. And the, and the thing is, is that in Kiev, by the time the war came, there was almost no one going to shul. And the idea that there was this quaint little wooden shul where they, uh, you know, followed the Sefer Tire with fire in their eyes right up to the uh, Holocaust, right up to the war, if it's set in Kiev, it's simply non-existent. Um, and the reason for that is because anywhere that was in the Soviet Union already from 1917, from the revolution, um, Yiddishkeit, Jewish life, was systematically wiped out. And that's a, an unfortunate tragedy that before the Holocaust, before the Nazis even made it to those parts, um, there, there were the, the flame of, of, uh, of Jewish life, of traditional Jewish life was almost completely extinguished. I can't say totally, but for the most part. And that's in large part because of the actions of the Evsektsia. Uh, before I get into um, who they were and what they did and how they did it in the background and what is the Evsektsia, I want to start off with a story that kind of brings us into how terrible the way that they uh, achieved their uh, objectives. In 1921, we're in Vitebsk in Belarus, uh, the the Evsektsia decided they decided that the shul the whole shul area the shul hoif the courtyard of five or six buildings around it was needed for poor children from uh, the working class families in the winter who lived in unheated homes they're going to house them there and therefore we need to shut down the shuls where they're no longer going to be used for prayer we're going to remove all the the sifritayra the svarim and everything and ban it and not allow anyone to come and daven there because we need it for the workers. Their children, the poor children, they should be warm in the winter. That was a means that they used to try to shut down shuls. So they tried seizing it. Now, the religious Jewish community, talking about 1921, it's only a couple of years after the revolution, they refuse to leave. They keep on davening there, and they insist on staying. They send down a team of Yevsektsia, Jewish communists, uh, to kick them out, and fights break out in the shul courtyard. And there's mud and rocks uh, flung at the Yevsektsia, uh, members and uh, they they try to force them out so there are special sit-ins and then they daven in the courtyard and they don't allow them to leave and they and they don't allow them sorry they don't allow them to take over and they try to forcibly remove them and then they try to t- they start bringing out the Sifrei Taira and the Sfarim and a whole long descriptive from an eyewitness that we have and they finally have sex it calls up for backups and they physically remove the people who had done a sit-in uh, uh, davening uh, to try to save their shul, and they forcibly remove them, and they and they take over the shul, and the shuls of Vitebsk are forever closed at that point. And they did this to, Vitebsk was only one town, they did this to thousands of shuls, literally, were taken over in this fashion across Russia. The Evsekti were, were, are really, it's, it's interesting that they're not so famous. Um, they were universally despised, hated, and not just by the religious, because the Evsektsia targeted everyone, anyone who wasn't a Bolshevik communist. They targeted the Zionists, all types of Zionists, anything that smelled of Zionism or or Hebrew language or Jewish culture. The Bund, they were even anti the Bund, because the Bund was Jewish nationalism as well. The Bund believed in Jewish autonomy, and that was unacceptable. That wasn't Bolshevik communism that was not the that was not what Lenin had in mind, and therefore the Evsektsia wiped them all out. Anyone who was nationalist, the religious, no one, and and everyone was victims of the Evsektsia, and no one liked them. 
to say the least. We'll go even further. On the other side of the spectrum, there were many Jews who joined the Communist Party, who joined the Bolsheviks, even at the head of the Bolsheviks, Leon Trotsky and Lazar Kaganov and other ones, the ones, the officer who, uh, I forgot his name, maybe it was Yakub Swerdloff or something like that. It was an officer who gave the order and the officer who carried out the order to assassinate the Tsar Nikolai and his family out on that uh, prison, I forget what it's called, the, the, that farm or whatever it was that they were being held in the year after the revolution, the one who, who gave the order and carried out the order to assassinate them were both Jews. So there were Jews or members of the Bolsheviks, but they were Bolsheviks, but they were assimilationists. They didn't act as Jews. In other words, they didn't identify as Jews at all. Um, and uh, people like Trotsky, they didn't like the Evsektsia either, because the Evsektsia were Yiddish-speaking Jews who were acting as Jews, as Jewish communists, to stamp out Jewish life, and they were too Jewish even for the assimilationist uh, um, Jewish communists. So they weren't liked by anyone. And um, so you'd think that they would be uh, more famous. They're not, so we're going to talk a little bit about them today. Um, the uh, the head of the the Evsektsia for all, pretty much its entire time, the Evsektsia only existed for 10, 11 years, from 1918, immediately following the revolution, until 1929 when Stalin disbanded the Evsektsia, and eventually he killed them all during the Great Purges uh, in 1938 as a reward for everything they did to help him uh, destroy Jewish life and... Uh, and uh, and make them all into communists. So the head of the Evsektsia was a fellow by the name of Semyon, which is Shimeon, Shimon, excuse me, Dimenstein. Shimon Dimenstein grew up in a religious home, and he studied at the Tel's Yeshiva, and at the Slabatki Yeshiva. He later on moved to a Chabad Yeshiva. He had smicha, um, allegedly even, there's one source that says from Chaim Oizek I'm not so sure, but he definitely had smicha, he leaves Yiddishkeit completely, traditional Jewish life at some point, and joins the Bolsheviks. And he um, he was arrested for revolutionary activity. And he's sent to Siberia. He escapes from Siberia. He goes to Paris. He returns to Russia once the revolution gets off the ground. He's a Yiddishist. He's very anti-use uh, of the Hebrew language. He calls it a reactionary language. He sets up the Yiddish communist schools. There were There were communist Bolshevik schools that the that they were completely in Yiddish for, for quite a few years in uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, he edited the Evsektsia newspaper, uh, which was called Der Emes. Now, I just want to tell you about how secular and how Yiddishist and how communist th- these people were. Der Emes, meaning the truth. But how did they write the word Emes? We would write it Aleph Mem Saf, but that would be Hebrew. So they wrote uh, MS as Ayin Mem Ayin Samach. MS, as if it was a Yiddish word. And, uh, and that's how they read, rewrote the, the word. Uh, so even we could say in a, uh, in, as an expression that even the word truth they wrote in an untruthful fashion. Um, another leader of, of the Evsektsia was a woman by the name of Esther Frumkin, who grew up as a Lifshitz. She came from a prestigious Vilna family and descended from, uh, the Rom Printing House and the Katznell and Bogans, both big Vilna families. But she grew up in a cultured home, a bit of a, a Haskalah-oriented home. Her grandfather was a rabbi, though. She went to university, very educated. She then joined the Bund, um, and also a Yiddishist. She was at the famous uh, Chernovitz Conference in 1908 of, of Yiddish writers. But then she joins the Evsektsia. She wrote for their MS. She was actually 
probably the first Jewish female newspaper editor in history, possibly. Um, but the idea of, of what I'm describing about, the, just as an example, these heads of the Yavsekti was that how they came from these very strong Jewish backgrounds, and here they went and they uh, made a concerted effort to wipe out and stamp out all forms of Jewish life. The, the, in the, uh, right after the revolution, Lenin wanted uh, all the different minorities, ethnic minorities within the uh, Russia, former Russian Empire to, to join the revolution. And the Jewish workers did not join the Bolshevik revolution, not in great numbers initially. So the Yevsektsia, which is simply a Russian word, Yev is Yevery, Jewish, Hebrew, right? Yevery is Hebrew, Jewish. And Sektsia simply is section, right? So it's the Jewish section of the Communist Party. That's simply what the word means. Um, now it already has like this uh, evil connotation. So it sounds much more than the mundane Jewish section of the Communist Party. But um, but the idea was to create that section and the activities of the Yevsektsia. They were given a certain mandate to generate interest in communism, in Bolshevism, amongst the Jewish workers, to create propaganda in Yiddish. Very simple and clear mandate, but that's not what the Yevsektsia did. They went way above and beyond what they were mandated by Lenin and his government, and later on by Stalin and his government. They went ahead and made a crusade to destroy religion. And this is something I'm going to emphasize as much as I can during this episode, is how most of it was done on their own initiative. This was not the initiative of the Bolshevik government, not that they were big friends of the Jews, and that's not my point, but my point is, is that the destruction, the destruction of Jewish life was what Jews did to other Jews. And that's part of the real tragedy. And that's why it's so appropriate for Tisha B'Av is to understand how this was something that was an in, pretty much almost entirely an internal Jewish affair during the entire 11-year period. Afterwards, there was plenty done by Stalin, which I'm not going to get into. That's perhaps for another time. Um, he definitely has... Uh, a lot to his credit of, of stamping out the Jewish life and, 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 and the purges and even after the war and again, and all kinds of things, a whole other story. But what I want to focus on is this specific period of time. It's, it's pretty much an internal Jewish affair. It's uh, Jews who grew up in the Pale of Settlement, who grew up in the shtetls, who very often come from Hasidic homes, from Rebisha families, from yeshiva homes, from religious homes, from small shtetls, from big places, and they... Many of them were former Bundists. In other words, they had joined other revolutionary movements first, and they were into Yiddishism, some of them, and into the Bundist ideals. And they leave that when the revolution starts, and they join the Evsektsia with this ideal that we're going to transform Jewish society in Russia. And the way we're going to transform it is by waging an all-out war against religion, against the Jewish religion, against Jewish nationalism, against Zionism, against the Hebrew language, against Jewish culture, against any manifestation of Jewish autonomous or nationalistic or religious life, and convert everyone forcibly to the great Bolshevist uh, idea, Bolshevik idea, uh, an ideal. So... One of the some of the people they targeted were uh, were rabbis, which we'll get to. But the humiliation of rabbis and firing them from their positions. Some of the rabbonim in the early years of the 1920s were still from the most prestigious rabbis in the Russian former Russian Empire. I mean, uh, one of the uh, early stories you have is Rav Moshe Soloveitchik, Rav Chaim Brisker's son, um, and the father of Rav Soloveitchik in uh, of of YU. So he himself was later on in, in, in YU, or in Yitzchak Chonis, or Moshe Soloveitchik was the Rav in Cheslevich. 
and when he and he and the atmosphere created by the Evsekti and Cheslevich came immediately following the revolution, that by the early 1920s, I believe it was 1921 even, 22 possibly latest, he is forced to escape and cross the border, and he makes it to his father-in-law's home, Rebelia Prujaner, in the city of Prujan, which was then an independent Poland. And he's and at one point, he's trying to describe to them, they're an independent Poland, they have no idea what's going on in the new Iron Curtain, behind the new Iron Curtain. It's just a couple of years after uh, where where Russia was the center of Jewish life, and he's like crying to them at the Shabbos table. It's an amazing description. He's saying, do you understand how Yiddishkeit is being systematically wiped out? That hundreds of years of institutions, of shuls, of mikvahs, of everything, they're being destroyed. The Evsekti is going from town to town and taking over the community and forcibly uh, taking apart uh, Jewish life. Um, Ramesha Feinstein, a few years later, ha- ha- was forced to leave Luban after years and years of struggling to keep Jewish life going. When they close the shul and they start uh, davening in someone's private home, they close the mikvah, and Ramesha has to try to arrange that some public bathhouse can be used uh, somehow as a mikvah. And uh, he tries to inculcate his children with a Jewish education, but the atmosphere in the street is so forceful of, of, of communism, of the Bolshevik Revolution, and the ideals of, of the Bolshevik Revolution that it just seems impossible to continue, and Ramesha also is forced to leave. Rebchatzkel Abramsky, when he was the Rav in Slutsk, and he end, ends up getting in such trouble with the communists because of the activities of the Evsekti that he is arrested and sent to Siberia. And Rebchatzkel Abramsky spends the next couple of years out in the Gulag. Reb, uh, Rav Zevin is, is, tries to stay on in Russia and even organizes a group of rabbis who are going to work underground and undercover in areas of Minsk and Belarus and those areas to try to keep the spark of Jewish life alive. And he is forced to stop and he makes it to Israel. And perhaps most famously is the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe the Rayats, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he, uh, he tells us, Hasidim, we have to continue, not underground, which they're eventually forced underground later on, but we have to continue out in the open. And we want to we want to continue Jewish life. It's going to continue as before. We're going to fight the Bolsheviks. We're going to fight the communists. We're going to fight the Evsekzia. And the Evsekzia specifically targets Lubavitch and the Lubavitch Rebbe because they see him as a trouble. And he's going to prevent them from destruction of Jewish life. And they go after him. And they go after his shlichim across, across uh, the, the Soviet Union during the 1920s. There's a story that... Um, that uh, that the, he was in Leningrad. First he was in Rostov with his father, the Rebbe the Rashab, in the immediate years following the revolution. And then the Rebbe Rashab uh, passes away in Rostov. And eventually the uh, the Rayats comes to Leningrad, formerly St. Petersburg, and now was renamed uh, Leningrad. Petrograd and then and then uh, Leningrad. And there's and he's and uh, there was a a, a Fabrengan or a Purim Suda and the and there's Hasidim around and this is the mid-1920s already, when in most places Yiddishkeit was, uh, in Russia was already gone, but the Lubavitch Rebbe insisted on continuing it. And he's having this public fabring in Purim Sudan, and he's talking, and he's talking about how does we have to strengthen Yiddishkeit. And he knows that the Evsekzia has agents sitting in the crowd, and he addresses them, and he says, I know that there are agents sitting here in the crowd who are out to destroy us or out to get us, and I don't care because we have to continue, we have to try to strengthen Yiddishkeit, we have to try to strengthen Jewish life as much as we can. 
and it was an incredibly brave, and eventually uh, the Yevsekci was able to get to him, and he was arrested, and of course he had to uh, get out of uh, Russia in 1927, which is a whole other story also, how he got out, and when he got out, and what happened to Lubavitch after he leaves, um, they essentially uh, go underground, but the um, but the 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 Soviet uh, Yiddish communist culture did not allow any uh, any expression of anything of anything Jewish that was not uh, that was not completely communist. No nationalism. They were against religion. Um, religion. They made it as if it was a class warfare. The the kehilas they went they 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 made a destruction of the communal structures. Why? Because they said the the rich and the rabbis were in cahoots and they controlled the working classes. So the religion is just an excuse. The Jewish religion, like all other religions, that's what they said. So they said it was just an excuse to control the masses, to control the workers, and that's why we have to wage war against religion. We, they targeted the kehila. They targeted the cheder because they educate them. They try to, they try to keep the masses dumb and ignorant so that they won't know that they're being, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, held captive as it were by the, by the religious leaders, the shuls, the mikvahs, the yeshivas, the rabbis, Zionism, Hebrew. Uh, uh, there is the habima, uh, um, Hebrew theater that uh, had to escape in mass. They were targeted by the Yosekzia specifically because they were a prestigious uh, theater. And they escaped when they were on a um, tour outside of Russia. They simply picked themselves up and moved to Israel. In 1926, they set themselves up in Tel Aviv. The Yosekzia, in a certain way, went after Zionism even more than they went against religion. Um, they, they, uh, they probably chased Chaim Nachman Bialik and his group of Hebrew writers and poets and, and liter, you know, uh, writers in Odessa more than they chased out the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Leningrad because Jewish nationalism was especially dangerous. And they, and they made an attempt to wipe out Zionism and Hebrew because Hebrew was seen as a language both of Zionism and of the elite, as opposed to Yiddish, which was seen as the language of the workers, of the masses. They went against all the political, Jewish political parties, the newspapers, the Bund, even though most members were former Bundists. But uh, here the Bund was still uh, proclaiming that Jewish autonomy and Jewish culture is important. And um, they would stage public trials to put the Jewish religion, its institutions, Zionism on trial. And where inevitably, it was a show trial, right? They, they had show trials way before Stalin did. And inevitably, they're all found guilty. I'll tell you a couple of stories about these types of trials. In 1921, again, it's only a couple of years after the revolution in Kiev, they had this staged uh, trial where a religious woman, who you know, obviously was acting, um, comes onto the stage, and the judge of the trial asks her, why, send, why do you send your children to Cheder and Yeshiva and not to communist schools? And the woman responds, and she's noticeably a very religious woman, she says, you think I'm from the low-class tailors and shoemakers? I come from rabbis. I can't give them your communist junk. So the, 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 uh, the, the judge says, you're a counter-revolutionary. Counter-revolutionary. You have a disdain for the working class. And everything becomes part of the class struggle. And then a rabbi comes on stage. And he said, they ask him, why do you build haters and shuls and yeshivas and teach foolish religious ideas? 
So the rabbi, again in quotation marks, it's not a real rabbi, and he says, so that the masses remain ignorant and they are content with little and remain slaves to the bourgeois masters. The Jewish religion, so the, the, uh, the, the judge then responds, the Jewish religion is like all other religions, it's a means for the rich class to enslave the working class. The religious ideas, the leadership, the nationalism, all serve that purpose. So it's all counter-revolutionary, and it must be eliminated. Now this trial in Kiev in 1921 took place in the same exact courtroom that the Mendel Bayless trial had taken place less than a decade earlier where Mendel Bayless was the uh, last blood libel in the modern era, where the Tsarist government framed him. So there was a fellow named Moshe Rosenblatt, who was a prominent member of the Kiev Jewish community, who was a traditional Jew, who was an anti-communist, and he was a prominent communal leader. And he was there, and he was there witnessing this, this staged trial, and he gets up, and he had the guts to get up and say and point this out, the irony to the Evsexia. He says, the Tsar who oppressed us all, we, and 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 the the expression of that was in the Mendel Bayless trial that was held right here, and now it's replaced by Jews trying each other, Jews destroying each other. The czar is gone, but the oppression continues, the persecution continues. Only now it's not the czar doing it to us; it's the Jews doing it to each other and destroying each other. And for his uh, bravery in getting up and saying that, his reward was that he was arrested. Uh, for those statements. In 1921 in Vitebsk, there was a trial against the Cheder. Thousands of Chadarim were shut down across Russia by the Evsektsia. So they, the Jewish community in Vitebsk tried to get a delegation to stop the trial. And the organizer above the, the Evsektsia organizer says, we're not afraid of this delegation because this group of, of snuff smellers, uh, the people who smell Shmektabak, which was a derisive way of referring to traditional Jews, he says, this group of snuff smellers is incapable of fighting. We're not scared of them. And they start saying how the Malamed doesn't give a good chinuch and he's cruel and there's non-hygienic conditions. Now a government representative, government representative means the non-Jewish Russian Bolshevik communist, the government representative says that the cheder can move into a better building so there'll be better hygiene. The Evsektsia wouldn't accept that. They said religion is, in a, is a tool of the bourgeois and then we must shut them all down. And so they did. Their zeal went way beyond what any government edict could possibly do at that time. They took matters into their own hands. They took their own initiative to wipe out religious life. Religious life had to go completely underground. The, these stage trials were followed by real trials. Criminal trials against rabbis, against Zionists. Uh, many of them were arrested, exiled to the Gulag, which was just developing then. And in Lenin's time, it did not develop only in Stalin's time. That's also a, a famous uh, misconception about uh, communist Russia. It was already during Lenin's uh, leadership that the Gulag was developed. Um, and many even killed. Uh, there was a cheder in Minsk in 1930, talking about a cheder underground. There was a shamish of the shul. He had six kids in this cheder. And it was an illegal cheder, of course. So he had trained them to hide as soon as someone approached. As soon as someone, they would be studying inside, he would be teaching them Chumash, whatever it was, the few kids in Minsk that were still interested in studying in 1930. And they, and the, and as soon as they would hear footsteps coming, everyone had their specific hiding place that they would jump into and he would take out, uh, whatever it is, some tailoring work that he would pretend to be doing. Very often they would have Malamdim who would you know, cheder teachers who would try to continue teaching Torah to children in, in many towns in Russia. 
during the 1920s, and they knew the Yevsekzia was looking out for them and trying to shut down these cheders. So they would have their wives stand out at the entrance to the home to watch and warn for them coming. But then it became a thing. If you saw the woman uh, uh, standing at the entrance of the home looking around, and you know that this woman was the wife of someone who was used to be a Malamed or possibly is a Malamed, then you knew that there was a cheder in there. So, And many, most of the youth at that time were already hostile to religion. The Yevsekzia was very fast, very successful. So these children would very often play tricks on the wife. There would be children in the street. They would see the wife uh, standing at the entrance. They'd say, hey, the, the Yevsekzia are coming, the police are coming. And they would run away laughing uh, as the wife ran inside to get everyone to hide quickly thinking that they were really coming. So what had essentially happened is that the Malamid becomes the laughing stock of the town. The yeshivas were forced, uh, they, they were forced to leave. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't go underground. Um, Mir left in the early 1920s back to its hometown of Mir. Slabotka left Kremenchung in the early 1920s. Eventually Radin leaves a year or two later. Um, Slutsk holds out a bit longer, but then they jump across the border illegally and they settle up, settle down in Kletsk. Um, and then the last holdouts in the Litvish Yeshiva world was Navardic, where they make an illegal border crossing already in the, close to the mid-1920s. They, they were the last holdouts. They tried, we're going to build Torah in Russia, we're going to fight the communists, but it became impossible. The Yevsekzia was so overwhelmingly successful at stamping out Jewish life that it was impossible to continue. And Navardic jumps the border also. They leave illegally, they leave families behind. Some of these kids are 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, we have letters from the Navardic Rashi Yeshiva to the Vada Yeshivas to the joint in the 1920s telling how they have to support, they need extra funding because they have to support these, these kids because they have no families. Their families are stuck behind in Russia. Lubavitch, of course, held out the longest. Um, they were, and like, uh, at that, at eventually the Evsekzia so overwhelmed them. They were targeting them specifically and they were driven underground uh, as well. Children had to go to school on Shabbos. They had to write. And very often the children were encouraged to spy on their parents. And you have these crazy stories where members of the Yevsekzi would go back to their own hometowns and come and, and, and destroy their own parents and their own cheder where they had studied and, and, and close down their own shul and confront their own rabbi. Um, uh, terrible, uh, tragic stories like that. Um, now, interestingly enough, according to the letter of the law, the shuls were legally allowed to stay open because officially, the, there was officially freedom of religious worship in the Soviet Union. So the Yevsekzia needed to close down the shuls, but this could not be part of their mandate because they, they had no mandate to close down the shuls. The shuls were allowed to stay open. So the Yevsekzia wanted to close down the shuls anyway. So on their own initiative, they decided to confiscate the shuls because they're needed for clubs and, and things like that for, for the workers. For entertainment, for culture, we need to make them to libraries, for the working class. The working class are the rulers now. We need to provide for them. So we're taking over all the shuls. Sometimes the community would appeal to the Russian communist non-Jewish government to get the shul back. And believe it or not, they sometimes accommodated them. And some shuls were returned to them. In other words, a crazy situation. And you have the Russian communist government returning shuls that the Jewish Yevsekzia had taken away from the Jewish community. Um, that's the extent of the hatred and the destruction that the, the Yevsekzia had, that they went beyond what the uh, government had in mind for the Jewish religious in- institutions. Um, the war on Zionism and the Hebrew language, as I mentioned already, uh, any vestige of Hebrew. Hebrew newspapers were shut down. Um, only thing that was allowed was secular communist Yiddish culture. 
Rabbi Feinstein fought for years to keep the mikvah open and to try to have another type of mikvah there. That would be secret. And uh, the Yavsektsian, knowing they, they were the Jews, you know, the non-Jewish uh, Russian communists probably would not have even understood the value of a mikvah and the importance of it. But they were the Jewish communists did. And that's why they made sure to shut them down. Um, and they, that's why they targeted the religious functionaries of the kehila, the rabbis, the shaykhtim, and the mayals, and other religious functionaries. But they had the weapon that the Yavsektsian had for that, where they were declassed. Declassed meant that they couldn't get jobs, they couldn't get bread cards, they couldn't get their salaries, they lived in abject poverty, um, they were humiliated publicly, their homes were taken away, they weren't eligible to get housing. The children of rabbis eventually were both ashamed and they simply couldn't survive uh, living with their parents. So very often you'd have children of rabbis, even prestigious rabbis, who would distance themselves from their parents and their lifestyle. Miles were an easy target, they were very often arrested for murder because they're dangerous, and it became dangerous to, be, to, to give a bris altogether. Um, another story, in 1920, so early, three years after the revolution, less than three years after the revolution, in Vitebsk again, there's, the Evsektia organizes an anti-Yom Kippur celebration, together with a band in Freedom Square, and then they go together to chop wood in the forest, which is an act of the workers' class. This is an event organized by the Evsektia, and it becomes popular across Russia to have anti-Yom Kippur celebrations. The irony is, is that Yom Kippur is actually something that kept uh, Yiddishkeit somewhat alive in Russia in the post-Holocaust, post-World War II era, because uh, the uh, what would be called, we, we can call the Auschwitz of the Soviet Union was Babi Yar. You know, they didn't have camps, they didn't have gas chambers in the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. The Nazis uh, killed the Jews of the Soviet Union in pits, in uh, in shooting pits, in Kivrei Achim, in mass graves outside of each town. One of the most fa- infamous ones was Babi Yar outside of Kiev, where 33,771 Jews of Kiev were shot by the Nazis and their Ukrainian collaborators in two days at the end of September 1941. Well, the second day of that terrible massacre was Erev Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur came to signify, and again, because Babi Yar was so central to the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, came to signify the Holocaust itself in the Soviet Union. Now, because the Red Army in World War II was the one that defeated the Nazis, so there was the communist, the way the Russians saw it, the Soviets saw it, was that it was the communist victory over German fascism. So therefore, you were allowed to commemorate in anything in memory of the victims of fascist oppression. Not specifically Jewish, but you're allowed to do anything in memorial of the communist victory over fascism. So you're allowed to remember the victims of the Holocaust. So because the, 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 it, was, it was around Yom Kippur time, so the Jewish community in the Soviet Union in the post-war was able to convince the Soviet authorities to allow shuls to be opened on Yom Kippur as a Holocaust memorial to celebrate the victory of communism over fascism, ostensibly. And they were able to say Yisker, they were able to say Kaddish, and it became like a Yom HaShoah, it became like a Holocaust day, and that's how Yom Kippur was still able to be kept. The shuls were able to still be opened, and and uh, and that's a, a bit of an irony, because here the Yavsektsia, they targeted Yom Kippur, they made anti-Yom Kippur celebrations. Um, and and uh, in Minsk, uh, uh, they had a down-with-the-rabbis demonstration on Yom Kippur. Uh, again, this is the Jews against other Jews. This is not the non-Jewish Russians who are involved. This is completely the Evsektsia, the and that's the major emphasis here. In 1929, Stalin no longer sees any need for the Evsektsia, so he disbands it. 
Um, the secular Yiddish communist culture does continue until Stalin got sick of it in the post-war era. And then the biggest irony of it all was that uh, during the great purges of the late 1930s, uh, Shimon Dimenstein and uh, and most of the Evsektsia leadership and rank and file are completely wiped out in the purges. They're not loyal enough. As loyal as they had, they they were they were they were not loyal enough. And Stalin gets rid of all of them. So that's the end of a really a terrible, tragic chapter in the history of the Jewish people, of what Jews are capable of doing to other Jews. In ten years, the Evsektsia did more damage than the previous two centuries did of Haskala, of modernity, of emancipation, of all we talk about, of so much damage to traditional Jewish life, of the Maskilim and the Zionists and all the secularists and, and all the Bund and everything. In 10 years, the Evsektsia accomplished what no one else can do. No government was able to accomplish what they did. No Jewish movement was able to accomplish what they did. The Evsektsia were successful at wiping out all Jewish life in Russia in a short period of time. And that's a, a terrible tragedy of Jewish history and definitely something, an important uh, chapter to remember. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, and um, lectures and, and anything else of the sort. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites and Podbean. And you can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.